Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about dialogue, healing, and peace building through the arts. Our guests are Daniel Banks and Adam McKinney. They are the co-founders and co-artistic directors of DNA Works in Fort Worth, Texas. Daniel has directed multiple theater productions in numerous venues across the United States and abroad. He has served on faculties including at New York University, Naropa University, and City University of New York. Among his many associations and activities, Daniel is founder and director of the Hip Hop Theater Initiative that engages hip hop theater to promote youth self-expression and leadership. He is also Associate Director of Theater Without Borders, and he sits on the cabinet of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. Daniel holds a Ph.D. in Performance Studies from NYU. Adam is a dancer, choreographer, and community activist. He has danced with some of the world's preeminent dance companies. He was a School of American Ballet National Visiting Teaching Fellow an opportunity that he had to engage in important conversations around diversity and inclusion in classical ballet. He holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Dance Performance from Butler University and a Master's in Dance Studies with concentrations in Race and Trauma Theories from NYU. He is an Assistant Professor of Dance in the School for Classical and Contemporary Dance at Texas Christian University. Areas of research of his include transgenerational trauma, dance and PTSD, queer dance, black dance, Jewish dance, and dance with veterans. Welcome, Daniel and Adam, to the Think Peace podcast. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. So I would love to hear from each of you your work, which relates to the intersection of healing and the arts and looking at a number of different issues um, related to that. I'd love to learn how you even got interested in this intersection and ways of transforming injustices and other things that we're experiencing in the US. Wow, that's a tall order. Um, I think what I'll say is that it's, or it's been organic. Adam and I both come from social justice-oriented families, service-oriented families. I think we've both uh, experienced different forms of oppression and uh, marginalization and discrimination. And I know for me, that just made, you know, when, uh, when I've experienced those things, it has not made me want to crawl into a hole it's made me want to fight and you know fight with other people and create fighter families um, of people to um, to link arms and just really something about coalition building it's always it's always been my response to those to those situations Um, somewhere obviously deep in my bones I understand that we're stronger together than independently and I'm sure that's something I must have gotten from my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my parents. And so, 
it's kind of a vague answer to your question, but that's, it, it really is from as, as young as I can remember that that's, that's been my, my impulse, my instinct. So it's kind uh, of been something early, early on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was given the name Daniel, which is all about judging and, you know, justice. I'm a Libra. So I just think, you know, justice has always been uh, primary in my, uh, in my worldview and, and certainly um, spotting injustice and, and, and wanting to, wanting to do something about it. So Adam, what about you, your journey? Yeah, my, my parents uh, met in Madison, Wisconsin, USA in 1960. My dad is African heritage and native heritage and my mom is Eastern Euro European heritage Jewish. And uh, I was born into the promise and possibility of making the world more just, more peaceful. I was born into a sense of possibility. And I also step into the possibility of the Jewish value of tikkun olam, which is uh, the reparation of the world. And that as an artist in particular, and one who leads peace building initiatives, that this notion of using our positionality to repair injustices is possible as long as we, as Daniel mentioned, do it together. And that it is a collective notion, it is a collective responsibility to be in community uh, doing this work. So you both, speaking of community and coming together, you both are working together on this. Can you just talk a little bit about how you joined forces and how you brought forward, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the DNA work, how you both met and then how DNA work became what it is today and what what it does what was your inspiration your hope for that well i'm not exactly sure why but i'm the designated teller of this story <laughs> <laughs> so adam and i met in december 2004 at an ethiopian hanukkah party at the jewish community center in manhattan and there was an immediate recognition and one of our first conversations, Adam, at that time coming primarily from the professional dance world, he was dancing with a professional dance company in New York, and I was teaching at NYU and the uh, undergraduate drama department, and I'm a theater director. And our first conversation was, or one of our first conversations was about the lack of good and reliable and uplifting and just enough representation of people with complex identities, whether that be mixed heritage or multiple heritage or intersectional, but just the fact that even as professional artists, we were always being asked to either identify ourselves, you know, in, in the box check kind of way, 
or choose one identity or people were identifying us sometimes even as things that we didn't identify as or as identities that we didn't identify as and we just found a real connection point about i would say in in our industry's eyes i don't necessarily own this but in our industry's eyes being ethnically ambiguous or you know somehow defying I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever people think mm -hmm. pure identity looks like or, you know, um, is. And, uh, and that, you know, I would say that the, that the connection and, and, and the attraction, and I mean the attraction really on a spiritual level and on a lived experience and lived life level, um, not to mention that his mother was running the Milwaukee chapter of an organization that my mother had been president of for the Boston chapter. Yeah. And I mean, I just like story yeah. after story after story that actually still keeps unfolding that we discover yeah. these, um, these tendrils of connectedness. I think of, you know, oak trees that are connected under the ground and that's why they don't fall down in hurricanes and storms and tornadoes and things is, you know, and we, we still are discovering the ways that we are, you know, had been connected since birth uh, in so many ways. And I think we recognize that. I think um, I call it spiritual Velcro. Like we just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, we're drawn together. Um, and so our personal relationship, we're married. Uh, we've been married for 14 years together for 17. Our personal relationship and our and our work together, uh, I think are all, all part of the same journey, all part of the same, uh, in, in, in Jewish culture, it's called beshert, you're, you're, you're destined in a way uh, to be together or to meet. And that quickly led into us individually being offered work that we thought could be amplified by doing it together rather than individually. And so, we just started talking about our business partner. <laughs> like, you know, well, you know, I would like to bring my business partner on this trip to Ghana, please, <laughs> and, um, and South Africa. And that then uh, led to us naming it. And we named it DNA Works because so much of our conversations uh, were around DNA and heritage and how, you know, that impacts identity. And also the fissures between how one identifies and or has been taught to identify and maybe what one's DNA actually is um, and and the fact that oftentimes we have DNA that we maybe suspect that we have but don't know about it until you take a DNA test which has been you know the case but also we discovered about six months in I was signing a, an email love D and A and I turned to Adam and I said, you know, honey, we did name our, con our company That's after right. ourselves, which was right. completely unintentional. And also our tagline is dialogue and healing through the arts. And so DNA is also dialogue and arts. So, um, but neither of that was intentional. It was completely subliminal. Uh, but again, a nice, a nice synergy in our narrative. And that's beautiful because it happened um, naturally, like you said, or organically. And I bet um, branding folks would have said, okay, you know, and we would have spent like thousands of dollars and all this time on how we can make all these play. And you guys just, I love that. It's like you just did organically and it worked out in a way that was authentic. 
and represented what you were what you were doing and what you were putting out. Yeah, the universe was our branding consultant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is much more efficient and not as costly, I'm sure. <laughs> well, if you don't listen, it's actually probably twice as costly. But when you That's listen, true. then you know. <laughs> That's true, because then you've got to like hit the wall five times and then <laughs> tell you listen, right? Yeah. So when you were doing work independently and you mentioned that you were in theater and also teaching and Adam, you were um, in dance. Were you incorporating some of the um, meaning and meaning first identity and, and different ways that, as you mentioned, people might identify a person, how you know, a person identifies themselves, the complexity of that. And then on the healing side, was it healing from things that you had experienced? What was, what was it that you were, the work that you were doing before? Did it always have this dimension of healing and identity? Or was it, yeah, dancing and shows that were more of a script that was given to you? H how did that journey as dancers and in theater play out for you? I danced professionally in ballet companies, contemporary ballet companies, and modern dance companies. Mm -hmm. And the models of leadership in the respective companies in which I worked did not leave the space for dancers to engage in deep relationships nor conversations about some of the issues that were important to the dancers themselves. And so, for example, in one company that I danced for, I was charged in performing what was known as the African-American experience. And I found that to singularize a group of people's experiences actually was a detriment to my experience and perhaps others um, because it was not fully reflective of all of the different ways in which one could be uh, of African heritage. Mm -hmm. And for me as an artist, that was a problem that I was uh, interested in having those conversations uh, and not able to, um, to engage in them in the ways that made sense for me. Um, and I think that starting DNA Works and certainly being in relationship and conversation with Daniel allowed for creating platforms for those conversations and experiences that felt really important um, at that time and um, continue to feel important to us as an organization. Also, I had a pretty well-steeped experience in liberation work. Um, and it felt to me that it was important to, to link those um, ideas um, and use what I knew as a performer to bring those ideas forth. Can you talk a little bit more about the liberation work? What, what does that entail and look like for somebody mm. who may not understand what that might entail? And then um, 
why it was so important for you to include that in the work mm -hmm. that you were doing. Um, I've been involved in various organizations. So on an organizational level, I was doing that work, which looked like engaging young people in conversations around oppression mm -hmm. and how oppression plays out in our lives, the ways in which oppression becomes internalized. And we repeat those oppressive acts out on ourselves and people like us. So working with young people in that capacity uh, through a camp that was formerly known as Anytown, and they were national institutes for young people, but also engaging adults in those conversations and actions around healing, um, being active, actively engaged in critically analyzing histories of oppression and working to come together as communities to subvert oppression in our lives. And that has looked like for me and historically um, using counseling practices to invite people to feel uh, the effects of oppression and then use our thinking to provide contradictions in our lives to that oppression to move uh, us forward as people. Um, we use this theory in our work at DNA Works um, and it shows up in lots of ways that I'm sure Daniel can uh, describe, but it felt like um, if we weren't doing that work around healing the hurts of oppression, then the result, the artistic result, would not be as nuanced and as based in contradiction to the oppression. It wouldn't have been as, um, as resistant to the oppression as we would have liked. Wow, that's amazing. So you're talking about things at so many different levels. You know, talking about the feeling, you're talking about the thinking, you're talking about shifting um, even the creative process and how that creative process has a different quality to it by the work that you're doing. Could you share some about how that might play out and some of the, you, you mentioned one, the young, the young adults. Could you give a few more examples about how you've woven together the themes that you've talked about in other ways that are that are connected to the work that DNA work focuses on? I'd be happy to. The first night that Daniel and I met, we uh, were talking about the lack of available narratives of people of mixed heritages on stage and screen. And soon after we founded DNA Works, our first, our first major production was a piece called Hamapa the Map Dance on Film. Uh, excuse me, it was called Hamapa the Map. It was 2010 that Daniel directed and I performed in. And it was a work in which I told the stories of my ancestors because of the ways in which my experience was not available 
uh, to me on stage as a performer mm -hmm. um, uh, and the ways in which my Jewishness has been questioned and my blackness and my middle-classness and my nativeness and my queerness. Um, it felt important to develop a stage work and dance theater work um, around um, my family's history and then to engage community in dialogues around some of the themes that we explore in Hamapavaman. I participated in my own practice of healing yeah. to remember my family's history by also engaging family members and telling their own stories about my family's history. Uh, so on a personal level, I was doing that. And part of the story circle process, we invite audience members to relay their own stories connected to the themes of racism and anti-Semitism and anti-gay oppression. And oftentimes we find that those people in those audiences um, had never um, both shared those stories before, but also had never been in communication and in relationship with uh, the other people in the audience. And so it automatically created this really beautiful network of connection through the performance of the art, kind of like the Ghanaian Ago Ame, that you offer something and then something is back offered to you. And in that way, in that cyclical nature of offering and receiving, for me as an artist, it contradicted all the ways in which my Black body had been exoticized through performance, through dance performance, that audiences got to have this like really wonderful experience of me and my body on stage, whereas my experience was one of loss and exhaustion. And so um, we've performed Hamapa the Map uh, around the world for the last 10 years or so. And we, uh, this past in the past three or four years have been transposing the stage work into a dance on film work, whereby we go back to all of the places that are mentioned uh, in the stage work, like Benin, West Africa, Poland, Lewistown and Harlowton, Montana, Arkansas, and other places. And with Laura Bustios Jaquez, who is an amazing uh, documentary filmmaker with Daniel as director and me as dancer, uh, performed Hamapa in each location. And uh, what we found is that it was not only healing for me as a performer, but also healing for uh, all of the other artists involved, Daniel, Daniel and Laura. And we also got to engage communities uh, in conversation around what we were trying to do. And we also found that just as we hold trauma in our bodies, and that we get to return to the sites of trauma, which are our bodies all the time to release it. That space holds trauma too. And so my dancing body in these locations 
got to return to these sites and through dance release historical traumas. And it was pretty, 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 uh, pretty beautiful. And the result, which is now Hamapavamapdefa film, is uh, just a really glorious work um, that we are really pleased to share with the world. That is so beautiful. And it was, there's so many dimensions to that. And when you were talking in, in, my, in my visual um, field, what came up was the sense of what you were talking about, the separateness or the disconnection and how you've been talking about doing things together and how through your work, so many things became connected again. What was disconnected was connecting. And I saw almost like those, you know, those 3D computer things where there's all these um, fractals that go around and then they're all connecting up. I could almost see this happening as you were talking, as you were connecting internally with yourself and then with the audience and with your history. And it's really powerful what you were talking about. And I love what you were talking about with the trauma and the somatic aspect of that being held and how it can be released, released but you talked about it with place. And that was something that I, you know, was very interesting to mention because we don't sometimes think of it being tied to a place like you described. So really amazing. So it's very deep work, but I'm, I'm just curious, you talked about the dancing and the exhaustion when there was a separateness in a way, when you were there, when there weren't the opportunities to connect with all parts of or share all parts of you or the audience was receiving, but there wasn't this connection back and forth. I'm just curious, is there a different quality of exhaustion when you're working in the way that you're talking about? when there's a release and a connection and everything going on through the healing process? Yes, I think it's because the goal was different. Mm -hmm. That it was the difference between entertainment on one hand and healing mm -hmm. on the other. And so, I think the goal for healing is like to, to, to overturn a stone and see what it looks like on the other side, where entertainment sometimes feels like a thin layer that dissolves easily. Yeah, I love that description. So when you talk about the work that you've done, and I know you talked about overseas you know, work overseas in different countries and, you know, using these practices and sharing those and connecting with others. What has that been like now back in, when you're back in the United States where you're living? And you used to live in New York and now you're both living in Fort Worth, Texas. So how did you end up in Fort Worth, Texas? And how has it been being in the U.S. now and looking at all of the issues that we have historically in our own country, um, historical issues that still are now in the present, issues related to enslavement, you know, genocide of our indigenous communities. You've talked about racism, anti-Semitism, you know, issues um, related to um, LGBTQIA plus um, liberation. So many identities and 
you know, and, and trying to navigate that personally, but also in this complex web in the US right now, when a lot of things on one hand have bubbled up to the surface and there's more awareness on certain things. But at the same time, as you mentioned, we don't see a healing yet in a, in a systemic way. And so I'm just curious, how does your work fit within that? What are some efforts that you've been trying individually and collectively with DNA Works and others? Um, but I'd first of all, I'd like to know how you ended up in Texas. So uh, Daniel and I moved to Texas um, more than five years ago. I'm an assistant professor of dance in the School for Classical and Contemporary Dance at Texas Christian University. Previous to Texas, we lived in Santa Fe for six years where I was the chair of the dance department for New Mexico School for the Arts and Daniel was the chair of performing arts at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I think one of the ways that we are trying to make sense of the world is by looking back to history. I feel like the work that we are doing at DNA Works is like the West African Adinkra symbol, the Sankofa, who teaches us that we must go back and get it. And I think the ancestors mean history for sure, it mm -hmm. being history, but I think it is also one another and that we have to do it together. And so when Daniel and I moved to Fort Worth, I soon learned about the story of Mr. Fred Rouse, who was the victim of a racial terror lynching in Fort Worth in 1921, and found that it was a little told story or an undertold story uh, in Fort Worth and nationally. And much of our work for the last three years or so, Daniel, would you say, um, has been uh, focusing on reconciling histories of racial terror violence and looking at the, the legacy of that history and using the arts to provide ways into those dialogues to envision uh, a future of peace, truth, and reconciliation. Daniel, do you want to share a little bit about uh, what that looks like? Sure. Well, I wanted to go back, uh, Colette, to one of your earlier questions about sort of the entry point. And I think you were asking us to sort of uh, connect the dots a little bit. And so one of the things I wanted to say is that our work fundamentally begins with listening, begins with asking people to really engage in a mindful relationship with one another through listening. And whether that's for two minutes or whether that's for 10 minutes or an hour, that we can change the energy of a relationship. We can change the energy of a space. We can change the energy of understanding a group of people through the power of listening. And it was great to hear you acknowledge also the power of place and space, because I think another thing that changes the energy around relationships and understanding 
is to listen to space and to listen to places. And here in North Texas, there are a lot of places as around the country that people don't know the history of, that they walk by every day and there's a history that has been obscured, intentionally covered up or hidden that will change people's understanding of themselves, of the city, of one another, of the history of the city. And in some of our current projects, we, without necessarily framing it this way, but we ask people to listen to these places, to be present in them, to learn the history, to listen for the voices and feel the presence of the past and consider not only how it changes them in the present, but what they're gonna do in the future to take that new understanding that new relationship to neighbors and to place and um, create something sustainable, create some sustainable change. And that is really the, the way that we finish. I mean, if, if there's an arc to our work, and this is, mind you, this is work that we do with professional actors and dancers. This is work that we have done with Roma and non-Roma youth in, in Hungary, and again, I uh, acknowledge that the term Roma is insufficient, but just for listeners, it's probably the term that will be most familiar to communicate the group of people that we're talking about. Um, this is work that I've done with um, gang members in a township in South Africa, and that Adam and I have done with uh, refugees in a uh, UNHCR refugee camp in Ghana, Palestinian and Israeli women poets, it's the same process everywhere. It's actually the process that we use at home in our relationship as well, which is we start with listening. We start by slowing everything down, breathing together, calming the nervous system, and we build our work out of this listening. Again, whether it be the two of us, whether it be all the artistic collaborators in the room, whether it be holding a story circle, around one piece, but then based on the things that we hear around the country during this story circle, having that influence our next piece, whether it be in the middle of creating a new piece and then holding story circles in the communities that are hosting us to create that piece and then hearing what their priorities and their, you know, what bubbles to the surface for them and letting that influence our, deci our artistic decision-making. And then ultimately, sitting together and listening to place and listening to space and listening to one another and um, then naming to a partner uh, or to oneself what action am i going to take in order to carry this newfound understanding or this recommitment to something or this connection to one's history what am i going to do to carry that forward into the world and to actually name it. And, and, and in some of our activities, we have people exchange contact information and hold each other as an accountability partner. So then we ask them to have a conversation in a week to check in and say, how are you doing? How's it going? How can I support you? Again, not doing it alone, um, contradicting that, that division and that isolation and that siloization of people 
and of individuals is, you know, listening is a form of meditation. Meditation is listening. Meditation is listening to oneself. So we just extend that beyond the individual into the collective. We do a collective meditation of listening to one another. And you said something related to the nervous system and that the process that you use, whether it's in a, you know, with a dance or, or whether you're doing a dialogue starts with both the listening and I love the slowing down. And as we were talking throughout this, it's like I could tell my nervous system was settling in. I could tell my breath was releasing tension as we were moving along. And then it's just interesting because it's from that state that we know our nervous system, that we can be more creative, have that space in between before we react or um, run around and do certain things that allows that moment of pause. And so it's just so powerful the way you described it and how transformative, as you say, that that can be, that allows people to come in in communion or connection with each other. I'm also curious your thoughts on how that also might be connected to our perpetual cycles of conflict and division and separateness from each other, connected to what you were talking about, Adam, about different identities, where we're separating from our identities, but we're also putting each other in certain camps. Mm -hmm. and, and that then we're just almost feel like, when I talk about the fractal thing, we're so fractured in a million different little pieces of identity, and that just keeps us all separate again, within ourselves and others. So question I have is how might that relate to how we move forward as humanity and as people given what is needed in order to have this connectedness with all this separateness and, I, and what have you seen? Yeah. I mean, clearly- <laughs> That's a question. You know, we know that there are multiple ways that the nervous system functions. There's a sympathetic nervous system, there's the parasympathetic mm -hmm. nervous system, you know, there's the, the nervous, there's, there's the calming of the nervous system that allows the brain to actually do what it was divinely designed to do, which is to care for and heal the body. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the great work of the um, neuroplasticians and people like Moshe Feldenkrais and Norman Doidge and other people who have, you know, theorized this in much more specific ways than I'm shortening it here. And then there's the part of the nervous system that that responds to danger or perceived threat, which is, you know, fight, uh, flight, or freeze, people call it. And, and I think that it is our birthright as a species to have the capacity to understand the multiple ways that our nervous system operates and to take responsibility for it and understand our own process, you know, our process in processing. How do we process? What makes us loving and what makes us fearful? What circumstances make us want to respond with violence or hide? And what circumstances make us want to reach out and connect and get, you know, as close as possible. And I think that unfortunately, because that is our birthright and that is our capacity, that is what perhaps distinguishes us um, from other species, is the ability to be in that mindful process where there is choice 
And that's what I love about the work that you're describing and the process you're describing, because it may seem simple and one hand because there's, it reminds me of like that whole thing, am I human doing or human being? And the work that you're encouraging is people to be human beings and slowing it down. And I think there's a tendency as humans to feel like you need to be a human doing. And it's, as you mentioned, like a race, race, race to do more, 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 to accumulate more, to do whatever. And your process is just encouraging that where transformation power can occur for change within oneself. It's actually the simple act of just being there with oneself, with another, letting the nervous system move. And then I, I think asking some of the powerful questions, you know, Adam, when you talked about when you do your dance and um, talking about your experiences and identities and being able to come fully in yourself in front of the audience opened up the space for them to do the same in ways that you said maybe they had never even thought about because we don't we never think about that until someone does it it's very vulnerable to do that and I, I think a lot of times like oh no I'm not going to do that what could happen if I open that up but you do that and it creates that space so it's very simple on one hand but also really um, potentially very transformative is the process that you're talking about. And I, I wonder, I have a question related to that. How does that work? How, do, how does that work when you're in an environment um, where there might be a lot of static in the nervous systems, where there's a lot of conflict? Is, say if you're working in a, a community or how you do it, do you find the groups you work with receptive? Do you already work with people who've already said, yes, this is what I'm doing? Or are they kind of all over the nervous system scale? I don't know if that's a, if I'm making sense in that question, mm -hmm. I kind of like basically, I was like, how do you, how do you bring it to help give a community that like, like I think again, when I said I'm from Nevada and I only knew my place and that's all I knew. And it wasn't until I moved or went overseas that I could learn other things and see more pieces of who I was. But it's because we're, we're only able sometimes to see certain things because that's what's in our front view. So if somebody were to come in then and say the things to me now, I think they're, you know, they're like, what? You know, it's so different. And, and how you bring that to different communities where this is very new. I think that is the role of the arts. Mm -hmm is to imagine something that is not yet there and to use our creativity to imagine what might be possible and then to step into it. And, and we make slow art. That is what Daniel has coined. Slow, slow art. Slow art. Slow okay. life, slow art. That's our motto. <laughs> That's that, it take, that it's okay to take time. Uh -huh. And it is useful. It's an actual model. It's a mode of creation. And it, it might be, it just might be that that thing that Adam identifies as something that has never been there that future, that imagined future, it might be that it actually has been there all along. 
and has mm-hmm. been covered up. And so maybe, maybe a lot of that imagined future is actually a return to something um, rather than something entirely foreign. And it's something that's been covered up or, um, you know, people have been taught not to be that for any number of reasons that might be legitimate and good and necessary. Um, but to create a space where even for that hour or that hour and a half, you can tap back into that place, you know, as a young person, that might not have been possible in terms of safety, but maybe now as an grown person or a you know a young adult or an adult we can find more of a blend more of an integration of that space i don't you know i i i think because of who i am in terms of the complexity of of my own identity um, and identities that i i think of myself as a spectrum person i live on you know not the polarities but i live somewhere in this constantly shifting middle and so I think of that in terms of integration. You know, it's integrating something that might have been lost into something that might have been gained. It's not giving one thing up for another. It's actually how do we find the marriage and the best of both of these things. And then that, yeah. that future that Adam talks about, which is equally important, that, that vision of, of something that maybe we've, we've never experienced. And so Adam talks about the Sankofa, the looking back to move forward and, you know, being in the present while looking back, but also moving forward and the integration of those three time zones. We all live in multiple time zones, whether we know it or not. Um, we're, we're constantly carrying something from the past with us. We're constantly moving towards something, whether we are conscious of it or, you know, not. Um, and then we're in the present navigating all three at least three of these time zones not to mention the time zones of our ancestors and how we carry that in our genetic makeup and in our bones and in our marrow and in our blood and so if if you know i think one of the beauteous things about being a human being is um that we are a walking vulcan chessboard <laughs> you know we're a walking chessboard of like four or five ten however many levels and we're constantly playing a multi-dimensional match or game yeah now that's that's an amazing way to picture that and then even like if i shut my eyes to try to imagine what it would be to be able to live within a multi-dimensional chess board um, system when it feels oftentimes in our in our human experience in our cultures we get pulled into limiting it as you said over time or in a situation and then we might lack imagination or forget what it could have been like it's it's interesting and how unleashing that um, allows a more coming into wholeness as you mentioned with all of your identities and possibilities so that's that's very powerful daniel you made me think about something when you said perhaps it has already and always been there. Um, I gave a talk yesterday for the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, and I was talking about one of our programs called, um, and this is a trigger warning that I'm gonna be referencing racial terror violence. So please take care of yourselves in the ways that you need to take care of yourself. 
in one of our projects called Fort Worth Lynching Tour Honoring the Memory of Mr. Fred Rouse, we also developed an augmented reality app to work alongside the tour. And we developed it in collaboration with um, Digital Ant Media out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, along with uh, artists who were commissioned for the creation of uh, work for the app. And um, with the app, it's like we find things in, in those locations. We find memory, we find ideas, we find sounds, we find images that were already there. And it's like finding something that's thin on one side, but if we look at it on you know, another angle at 90 degrees that it's thick and substantial and present um, in the spaces that we're trying to uh, investigate together as a community as we take people on bike and car tours around Fort Worth, Texas. And that program, Fort Worth Lynching Tour, honoring the memory of Mr. Fred Rouse, um, is really a community action project to think about resisting histories of oppression and histories of racism in the places in which we live and work and engage. And that, you know, that the tour takes three, four, or five hours, depending on how much people engage. Um, during the tour and so like taking our time in those spaces and looking at the things that have already and always been there is yeah Daniel it just made me think about that Fort Worth lynching tour honoring the memory of Mr. Fred Rouse. And related to that there's also an aspect of um, we talked about memory um, but specifically memorialization and memory and creative space could you talk about the efforts that you were working on um, to bring memory and a transformative space to a building? We talk about place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So after we moved to Fort Worth in 2016, while Adam was doing some research about Mr. Rouse and about uh, histories of, of lynching in Fort Worth, he discovered that Fort Worth had one of the largest, if not the largest um, Ku Klux Klan membership in the country in the 20s and the early 20s. And that membership, Clavern number 101, built an auditorium, 10,000 foot perimeter, at least three, if not three and a half stories with a stage, a proscenium stage at one end of it and the entire perimeter is brick with some glass. Uh, it's an, an immense building that's about one mile due north of the county uh, courthouse. And its last owner prior to the current owner uh, was Ellis Pecan Factory. So it's, it's known as the Ellis Pecan Building or 1012 North Main Street. Um, Ellis Pecan left it in 1999. It was sold in 2004 to an LLP. Um, it has not been developed. Uh, their plans for it did not, um, did not materialize. And so it's been empty now for over 20 years. And our first response when Adam said, oh my God, there's a building here that was built by the Klan, 
we both said, as we sometimes do almost simultaneously, it needs to be an art center. So we also recognize that as newcomers to Fort Worth, as newcomers to Fort Worth, um, this was not, this could not be a DNA Works project. We had no right to say, this is what this city that we're just came to needs. Mm -hmm. But we did start to ask people and we started to say, do you think this is, you know, again, here comes the listening, right? We started to ask people, do you know about this building? What do you think about this building? What do you think should happen to this building? Do you feel that this would be useful and healthy and healing for Fort Worth for it to become something else rather than it be torn down? I mean, I think we calculated that in the last three years, we've, you know, individually, we've spoken to over 2000 individual people. Um, and then we very quickly started inviting other local organizations to join us. And specifically, we were interested in organizations that either represent or serve the groups that were targeted by the Klan in the 20s. So um, Hispanic, Black, immigrant, Jewish, LGBTQ, Catholic. So we began this process of forming this coalition, this collective of um, what is now eight organizations. And together we've collectively formed a group called Transform 1012 North Main Street, whose mission is to acquire and transform the building into a center for a center and museum for arts and community healing. And the goal is that that center will be named after Mr. Fred Rouse. So another way to honor his memory and his legacy as someone who, whose life was cut short because of racial violence. And um, the building uh, process began in 1921 and Mr. Rouse was murdered um, in 1921. So uh, we've been working now on it for, uh, as a collective for over 18 months, probably close to two years now. Um, I think it is two years. And uh, we've, we've made good progress. We're now a 501c3. Um, we are, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, we have a, um, uh, a capacity building grant from Ford Foundation that has allowed us to hire some independent contractors as part-time staff. Um, we have Congressman Mark VC, who's one of the local congressmen, put us forth in the House Appropriations Funding Budget which made it through committee into the federal budget. So when the federal budget is passed, um, we will have some funds to begin the um, stabilization of the building and acquire the building, get site control. And uh, we also recently won uh, Urban Land Institute's ne Next Big Idea Award, which was quite amazing and joyous mm -hmm. that we were supported in that way. It was actually, a live voting of all of the, it seems like I think 500 plus people at, at that event um, who voted live among three different projects. And um, I had the great honor of presenting with Ms. Opal Lee, who is one of the founding board members and whose who's Juneteenth Museum is one of the founding organizations of, um, of Transform 1012 North Main Street. And lots of other good good things and good omens and good tidings with this building. Um, obviously, there are many conversations still to be had with people who 
would rather that it not be preserved, who feel um, that it's, uh, it's a painful light on the city. Um, and yet um, we have overwhelmingly um, supporters who understand that you can't run away from pain. You have to move through yeah. it and to transform violence and pain into something peaceful and um, generative and that will serve the communities who were separated by the clan, right? For, in terms of the siloization, the separation, you use the word fractured in ways mm -hmm. forward is very much a fractured city, um, both geographically, physically fractured by things like highways being built through the middle of a black community and um, other ways. Um, and that this is a project really about reuniting, reassembling the city. And um, we're beginning to use the tagline, um, transform the building, transform the city. And this is a project that mm -hmm. is built out of listening, is maintained through listening and breathing together and shared leadership. Every organization has a vote on the board, including our youth council. So the young people of Fort Worth have a vote on the board, and um, and our our proposal is that, or our theory is our working theory is that if all of these groups, um, or given that all of these groups are represented on the board and are collectively making decisions, and that it's a pluricultural leadership of all of these cultures together, not conforming to one dominant culture, but actually creating a quilt of all the cultures um, and, and us celebrating one another's cultures. And I don't just mean cultural events, but I also mean ways of doing things, um, ways of operating in, uh, in community and collective, that then the decisions that are made about the design of the building, about programming, about colors, about, I mean, every, at every step of the way that, that um, then all of the groups that we represent and belong to walking into the building will feel that they belong, uh, will feel mm -hmm. a connection, a cultural connection to the building, that it will feel like a safe space for multiple groups and not just privilege one group. And that that's, um, that's our, if you will, that's our theory of change is that it takes all of these groups coming together to create the place to make it welcoming um, for all the groups that have been damaged and hurt by the original owners and builders of the building. And I really appreciated what you said where you can't run away from the pain and you were being very intentional about walking through the process or the journey of creating the building, it's not just creating a building, it's much more than that and, and bringing everyone together. It's, that's, a, that's not a usual approach. Oftentimes it's, you know, people just wanna get it done. Going back to some of the topic, we just gotta get it done, we gotta get it up or whatever is expedient. So it goes back to something, Adam, you said, Daniel is always saying, you know, art is slow. It feels like it's like you're trying to slow down the process to allow the process to allow the connection and the healing to be woven throughout that, that then facilitates the process that facilitates the healing. If I'm describing what my understanding of a lot of what you were just describing was the way of transforming separateness. Yeah, my grandfather used to say, make haste slowly. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, because you can't just hang there and wait, like not do anything. So there needs to be something moving. That's, that's perfect. So before we close, I would love to hear from you, Adam and Daniel. I would love to hear, you know, anything else that you want to make sure that we might not have covered or covered adequately that, that you want to share. So I'd love, love for you to each do that. I noticed that when we have many voices at the table making decisions, offering feedback, offering ideas, that the work, and in this particular case that is reconciling histories of racism, is vibrant, it's hopeful, it's possible, that healing is possible when we do it together and collectively. Here in Fort Worth, I co-founded an organization called Tarrant County Coalition for Peace and Justice, which is a community remembrance project of the Equal Justice Initiative, Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, founded the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum. And together with the Rainwater Charitable Foundation here in Fort Worth, Texas, um, we purchased the site of the lynching of Mr. Fred Rouse, um, which is different from the site that Daniel was talking about and we'll be transforming that space into the Mr. Fred Rouse Memorial. And it will be a garden to where people can come to reflect and remember and feel held while doing so. Um, and in these ways, I think about it like acupuncture points that we get to put little pins in, in different places in our city and fine tune the energy to create a holistic healed body. And it takes all of us together doing the work. So um, DNA Works has spurred two organizations and has been involved in the creation of two organizations here in Fort Worth, Texas, both of which who are uh, looking at what healing can look like um, for our city, and that is Tarrant County Coalition for Peace and Justice and Transform 1012 North Main Street. And it's been um, just tremendous doing this work here as artists um, who are committed to healing and justice. You're really bringing together, I love the um, acupuncture metaphor with the pins because all of the things you've been talking about, the coalition, the collective, the different points of entry, but even pain points, which the acupuncture you know, creates a little bit of a system um, reaction. So you're creating these opportunities for that. It's really, yeah, multi-layered, so, so many different layers. It's just so amazing. Thank Daniel, you. For sharing. Did you want, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Daniel, did you want to say something? Yeah, I would just like to say that I think one of the benefits of moving slowly is that there is room and space to be surprised. 
And I want to share an anecdote. Well, it's not an anecdote. I want to share something that happened early in our stay here that that really stays with me and gives me great hope. So we, one of our early partners is a magnificent organization. They're also one of the founding organizations of Transform 1012 North Main Street called LGBTQ Saves, which provides safe space for youth, um, after school space, um, space to study, to come together, um, to support one another, to receive support and training for parents and teachers around um, LGBTQ youth. And we did a, a program in collaboration with them. Actually, it was a benefit for them where uh, some years back, um, two organizations, um, No Passport and Missing Bolts Production created something called the After Orlando Plays. They commissioned 55 playwrights from around the world to write short plays to commemorate the uh, violence um, and murders at the at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And they invited organizations uh, who wanted to do this as a benefit for another organization to choose from these 55 plays and you know at no, no residuals or royalties um, uh, to use them. And so our very first project here in Fort Worth was in collaboration with the Stage West Theater where we uh, staged um, for an evening with local actors. I think it was 13 of these plays or 15 of these short plays. And uh, we did the community story circle afterwards. Well, first of all, it, it almost sold out in about three days from the time that it was listed, which was really um, a surprise to me and a pleasant mm -hmm. surprise. And then, I mean, the tickets were by donation only, so. <laughs> you know make it affordable you get an audience yeah <laughs> people were it but it all yeah. people also are won't spend time unless it's something that calls yeah. to them or is interest so that's exactly. important yeah and so after um uh, after the readings we uh had our community story circle and i'll never forget a man in his 60s probably late 60s early 70s in the front row stood up and said um something to the effect of uh, I was always taught, I'm from here, and I was always taught to be afraid of and hate you people. And I thought inside, as I'm facilitating the story circle, I was like, oh no, what do I do? How do I, how am I going to handle this? Mm -hmm. And he said, but after hearing these stories and hearing these stories about parents who lost children and hearing, you know, just the wide range of stories um, that were told in that evening, he said, I realize that I have more in common with you, you than I ever imagined. And I wanna know how I can support your community. What can I do? How can I get involved? And that was, you know, people who aren't familiar with Texas often say to us expecting a particular answer, you know, what's it like living in Texas? And I tell them that story. That's not to say that we're not impacted emotionally by you know, some of the recent legislation and other things going on. I don't certainly am not, uh, don't want to paint, um, I don't have on rose colored glasses, but I do know that by moving slowly, by taking the time, by listening, we've actually heard dissenting um, points of view. Um, the first person that I dared to speak our vision for the building out loud to before we had even named the project or talked to anyone else about it, Adam had been talking about it and I had never put it into words in my own mouth was a curator of one of the museums here whose 
family is one of the founding families of the city. And I, I said, you know, well, this is what we're working on um, in a moment of sort of boldness and not knowing how she was gonna reply. Um, and she said, well, it's about darn time that Fort Worth took responsibility for its history of racism and racial violence. And she said, bravo for doing that. We, you know, I'm of the founding family and I am not proud of what my city has become. And I, and yes, this should happen. And it was, again, another one of those moments of surprise mm -hmm. where it wasn't the response that I expected. And, um, and so there's, um, there's fertile ground here for change. There's fertile ground for um, um, acknowledging the past, again, talking about these time zones, acknowledging mm -hmm. the past, but creating um, a better future for all people here. And um, I think that's what keeps us here and that's what keeps us motivated and, you know, working uh, as hard as we do is that it, it, there is fertile ground. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you said going slow to allow for the opportunity to be surprised, I think is the word you used. And it also made me think about what Adam said is, um, you know, giving the space for something to be created or happen. Yeah. And if you hadn't opened those spaces, you wouldn't have, who knew? Yeah. But providing that space, we can surprise ourselves and each other. That, as you said, that there's more commonality perhaps and that it's not all you know, opposition. Yeah. Not that it's all rosy, as you said, but there's space where, where it is rosy. And so where can you open that space, which is what you're all doing. Uh, and I do want to shout out our these websites before we conclude because we would love for folks to join the, the movement because it really sure. is a movement here. So um, there's www.transform1012.org, uh, www.tccpj.org for Tarrant County Coalition for Peace and Justice, tccpj.org, and then www.dnaworks.org dot org d-n-a-w-o-r-k-s dot o-r-g and we would just please join us thank you and thank you so much um daniel and adam for taking time today and sharing your work and your vision and your wisdom and experiences with the think peace podcast um, audience thank you thank you Colette. thank you Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. And thank you to those who make this podcast possible, the Mary Hope Foundation and our amazing senior producer, Cam Kasser. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes and news. And remember to think peace.